0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American Patriots and Minimans standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, and property. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today at Sierra Podcast. It is Friday the 13th. And I wish this were indeed just a nightmare or one of those horror shows of Friday the 13th, but indeed. This is real life where we are nothing but lab rats in the hands of global nefarious oligarchs. Just very succinctly, what we are up against is this. In past history, when you had megalomaniacs who wanted to take over and control people, they wanted power, money, greed. They liked controlling people. Now, they literally want to control our bodies inside out. That is not an exaggeration that has already happened. This is what we've already been living through. And God knows the other angles that they're using against us. So to us, the challenge of our time is central power and globalism. We must combat that through decentralizing their power and localism. That's the antidote. Those are the T-cells, the antibodies to the tyranny. Now, obviously, you know, even localism, it doesn't mean that that neutralizes what they're doing nationally and internationally to track, trace, invade our privacy. But we got to try our best, focusing on local politics, local institutions, decentralizing, building our own parallel society. And it's really every sphere of society, economy, culture, education, and even religion. With so many of the major religions at an establishment level rotted out to the spirit of the age, this is what it's all about. So later today, we are going to have a new guest on, Dr. Kat Lindley, to discuss the pandemic treaty, the global pandemic treaty, to synergize all the tyranny that we've seen the last couple of years, how to turn the entire world into Shanghai, how to turn all 8 billion people into lab rats. So we'll discuss that coming up. But first, I want to just really clear the decks for the week, go through some of the things that we haven't gotten a chance to dwell on enough. <laughs> um, obviously, we had last night Rand Paul stand blocking unanimous consent for the $40 billion uh, Ukraine giveaway. Uh, obviously, it's not going to stop it. You know, all he can do is delay it a few days. The cloture vote will take place on Monday. And then maybe if he continues to object, it could drag it out another couple days. But I doubt he has more than five Republicans with him. And even some other Republicans who are trying to hold up the bill, it was for extraneous matters. They have no problem with this. And by the way, it was just announced that Zelensky will be speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos at their next little uh, (coughs) get-together. So all these fake conservatives and Republicans that are on board with this and shaming people like me for not being on board and calling us puppets of Putin, well, they are puppets of the genocidal maniacs that foisted upon us the Great Reset, okay? Because that's where this is all headed towards. They're all part of that same toilet. And I will tell you, the other thing I wanted to get to is the primaries. The two big litmus tests are what are they saying on medical freedom and what are they saying on Ukraine? Because it's hard to fake those issues. And just wanted to give a little bit of my thoughts on the primaries. I had hoped originally to get more involved, but honestly, there aren't too many candidates to get involved with. Now, the good news is it does appear like things are heating up. So some of the earlier primaries, no one was focused, so the incumbents won by default. And so far, every single incumbent that mattered for governor has won. One of the things that does bother me is that the entire focus of the conservative movement, even the better folks that do want to change things, they're always a mirror image of what the bad folks are talking about, so it's all Senate, Senate, Senate. And look, I have no problem, you know, going all in for a good guy for Senate. But if you're going to do that by a factor of a hundred, you should focus on Governor. So we'll start with Pennsylvania. That's one of the states that's up next Tuesday. You know, every Tuesday, now indefinitely, we're going to have primaries. And I must say. I find it bizarre. Everyone's focusing on the Senate race as if this is like the Elijah on Mount Carmel moment when, in fact, the governor's race matters more. You get a good governor in there, you get a trifecta. So, to me, I'm more concerned about that. In all honesty, I have not focused enough because each candidate has some flaws. I do think... So far, the front-runner probably actually, ironically in the rare sense, because it's usually not like this, is the best candidate. And that's Senator Doug Mastriano. But we'll see what happens. And everyone's saying he can't win. He can't win. Just like they're saying about Kathy Barnett on the Senate side. And what I can't understand is even if you buy into this nonsense that the more establishment candidate is more electable, which is actually the opposite, usually, but not always. It's, it's often just really the quality of the candidate more so than ideology. In a year like this, when even blue state Democrats are in trouble, you're going to tell me in a swing state like Pennsylvania, you cannot win? The Democrats for sure are going to win? Where does that come from? It's just not even accurate. It's stupid. So I'm actually more worried about the gubernatorial race because even if Kathy Barnett is the greatest thing around, okay, so you have you know, you have Vance and Barnett and get a couple of senators in. You're still years, decades, centuries away from getting 51 conservative senators in that body. What are you going to do with that anyway? But broadly speaking, my thoughts are like this. I don't know about Kathy Barnett's past. I don't know about her future. I am naturally suspicious of candidates that everyone goes gaga around based off of their life story. I don't like identity and life story. I want to know that you're going to deliver the goods. Now, in her case, to be fair, she actually has a pretty robust section on her website on medical freedom. So here's where we are with most candidates. I would like a guy who's been in the foxholes with us, and we know he's like a... Thomas Massey. We rarely have that luxury. Rarely have that luxury. But the next best thing is at least someone who's now speaking our language. I mean, we have plenty of people who have pandered to us and then lied to us. But I would take even someone who's pandering to us. We don't even have that. So at least Kathy Barnett is speaking our language. The other ones, at least at the top... Now, you know, there are some candidates way down in the polls that I think are good, like Bardo's there, but I mean, I don't think he has a chance. So yeah, I mean, at this point, if I were in Pennsylvania, I would vote for Kathy Barnett because out of the three candidates that could possibly win the primary, uh, certainly the other ones are worse. Now, I would also say that that race has taken on a life of its own, an importance of its own in in, in this sense. Part of this decentralization is that we need to show that we're going to take our own destiny in our own hand, that we have matured as a movement, and we're going to focus on our outcomes. And what I like about this is that it's, if Kathy Barnett were to win, which I think she will at this point, it will really weaken the establishment, Fox News, and the Trump establishment. All of them have joined forces against us. So the Trump establishment and Fox News is in with um, the Wizard of Oz, the Grand Pasha from Turkey. And I guess the mainstream establishment was with that other guy. So to me, there's value in defeating them and creating momentum. But, it, but again, it does frustrate me that we're not focused on the bigger races, which are our governor's race, both in Pennsylvania, but then... You go to Idaho. Why is nobody helping out with that? I was one of the first people around to endorse Janice McGee, and you want to talk about someone that you know is with you in blood and soul. She literally became governor for a day when the, you know, she's lieutenant governor, when Brad Chicken Little left the state for a day, and boom, she got rid of the mandates on kids, the mask mandates, before it was popular to do so. But look, it's going to take a miracle for her to win. Trump gave a tacit endorsement and then literally said nothing after that when no one was following the race, never went there to push it. Had he gone there and rallied with her, it would have sealed the deal. So I don't know. But in Idaho, we really, Idaho is a perfect state where people are moving to, to escape California and we can make it red as anything. There is a slate challenging the establishment at every level. So, uh, Janice obviously is vacating the lieutenant governor's office. That opens up uh, an open race. There's the establishment versus Priscilla uh, Giddings. So, Priscilla needs to win that. For lieutenant, uh, for attorney general, there's this AG who's a total leftist who's been there forever like six terms, or five, six terms. Uh, So Raul Labrador is running against him. For Secretary of State, uh, Dorothy Moon is the good candidate there. And then for Congress, the Eastern Southern District, uh, Idaho Falls area, uh, we have Mike Simpson, who is one of the most liberal Republicans ever, a drunkard, bum, a horrible, horrible person. So Brian Smith is challenging him. So really tremendous opportunities. Anyone you know in Idaho uh, we have a chance to sweep out the entire establishment there and really, really change over the state. Now, folks, one of the ways you do that is by joining Patriot Academy's Constitution Coach program creating these local cells. You get together, become a Constitution coach, and gather in your house local cells of people who want to study the Constitution and resolve to take back your local community. They also have local candidate training at Patriot Academy, so check it out. PatriotAcademy.com, our long-standing partner. And by the way, another week until I see some of you guys out there for our defensive handgun training out in New Mexico. Uh, Check out Um, Academy.com slash Daniel. We will have future dates coming. Those of you who are able to take off for a summer vacation but were unable to attend our May 22nd class. So this is certainly something you want to join. Patriotacademy.com, one of the few grassroots organizations that I think is doing good in America. Now, another race that is really important is Alabama, <clears throat> Alabama is the following Tuesday, so a week from Tuesday. Uh, I, you know, I just never worked out on the schedule, but I do hope to have Tim James on. Basically, K.I.V. She ridiculed people for not getting the shots. She's a COVID fascist. She masked all the kids. This is in deep red Alabama. Alabama is another state that we are not living up to its that it's not living up to its reputation amazingly a poll did come out and showed her at 40 percent now in Alabama there is a runoff there's a bunch of small candidates running the two main opponents are Tim James and then Blanchard who was like an ambassador to Denmark or something under Trump I don't know what her narrative is but the only one running on traditional Alabama values is Tim James So he is someone I could work with. And again, if you're in Alabama, all hands on deck. We might have ourselves a runoff. Again, everyone's focused on the Senate race. And Trump laid an egg. He took away his endorsement from Mo Brooks and is allowing the establishment candidates to win there. I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I don't have a clear read on it. But frankly, I care a lot more about the governor's race, which bizarrely... No one cares about it. I, I just don't understand after watching DeSantis, everyone recognizes the power of the governorship. I don't understand why we didn't resolve to focus on that. But look, if we can get Carrie Lake in Arizona, we can get Tim James in Alabama, we might have something to work with and, and, and we pray, <laughs> pray for a miracle in Idaho. That would be truly amazing. Um, so again, this is where we need to focus It's really heating up, and this is going down very quickly. In the next two months, all of this stuff is going to be decided. So that is with that. Now, as we talk about this global control of humanity, global control of humanity, I want to share with you a very disturbing story, very, very disturbing this is from Global Health Now. Africa's vaccination effort is not losing steam. It is becoming more strategic. Last month, the New York Times article detailed the loss of momentum for COVID-19 vaccination efforts in low-income countries, pointing out to stagnating vaccination rates. That's a mischaracterization of recent strides that have improved equity and local vaccination rates. And they basically go on to note that they're ramping up their effort to go after Africa. And if you think about it, Africa has borne the brunt of this evil Western experimentation, Nazi-like experimentation for decades. And they've done the best. You see, you know, in Nigeria, after just a few percentage have, have, have been jabbed, they have, in a country of over 200 million, like 10 cases a day, no deaths, whereas all these other countries that until now had no problems, but post-vaccination they're having all the problems because the shots perpetuate and exacerbate the, the ailment and now they're going and reversing that progress in Africa, it's truly disgusting so this is what they want to do these megalomaniacs, I don't know where they get this power from, but they have it We've been asleep at the wheel for decades. And that's the point. If we don't take action, this is going to be upon us. Meaning it's not like, oh man, you know, we just have to make sure we don't affirmatively ratify a pandemic treaty with 67 votes and then we're good to go. No, if we don't take action to divest from all this, to ban it, to criminalize it, this is what we need to do. We need to have criminal penalties, local and state laws, for those who breach medical privacy, those who track us, those who force jab, force mask children, those who deny care, discriminate based on Nazi-like medical nationalism. There's no middle ground here. No middle ground whatsoever. There's another story I wanted to share. I haven't gotten a chance to. It was in um, a Zero Hedge. So, a bunch of Republicans joined with Democrats to give him this massive infrastructure bill, a trillion dollars. And it's not just the inflation and the, that's going to cause, but when you know when you're spending a trillion dollars on anything, it's going to do to that sector what it did to healthcare. It's not just the money, but the policies and control that it induces. So basically, what they reveal is that in that bill is a provision that requires all vehicles produced after 2026 to be fitted with a remote kill switch. Electric vehicles already have this capability via internet-connected superchargers. And... They could be a backdoor that allows government agencies to shut your vehicle off remotely. Again, think of everything you care about that you need food, fuel, medical care. Cars. The, the the car is the symbol of American expansiveness and freedom that has been lacking in Europe and other countries where you know most people have two cars. They've been gunning for that forever. And that's why they're making it that you won't be able to afford a car under $50,000. Gas will be a fortune. But now, they'll be able to monitor your movement in the car and shut it off. This is real stuff. I warned about it at the time. But of course, Republicans supplied the votes for that. So folks, this is where we are. This is not getting any better. Then, I wanted to get to some news on masks. You would think, oh, at least the mask is over with. No, it's not. Most people go into doctor's offices. They still require it. If you're a doctor or nurse yourself to work eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, you got to wear it. And you know what? It is not done in the schools on the children. A friend of mine last night told me even in New Hampshire, there were some uh, schools that were about to reinstate it. Now, there is a bill sitting on the governor's desk there, past both houses in New Hampshire to ban it in all localities in the state, and hopefully he'll sign it. By the way, there are some good bills waiting on, on his desk there. Uh, HB 1022, that's the ivermectin over-the-counter bill. It did pass the Senate, so it's waiting for his signature. Um, they would become the second state after Tennessee. I am hearing some grumblings about Florida might do this executively. So, again, I mean... Good things are happening, but so much more could be done. We have to stay focused. Anyway, uh, Doctor Andy Bostom, we, we used to have him on the show a lot. He's an epidemiologist, cardiologist from uh, Brown University. He he sent this around this morning. You know he's all, he's good at unearthing like you know academic literature from the past. This is his uh, expertise, and he sent around this article written by Dr. Shane Nielsen of McMaster U in, uh, I guess, Hamilton, Ontario. It was written back in 2016. Fascinating if you read the whole thing in in the context of what we wound up dealing with four years later. It's titled, The Surgical Mask is a Bad Fit for Risk Reduction. Shane Nielsen, look it up. I propose that the surgical mask is a symbol that protects from the perception of risk by offering non-protection to the public while causing behaviors that project risk into the future. While causing behaviors that project risk into the future. Wasn't that fortuitous? Wow. Foreshadowing. Oh my gosh. That's exactly what it does. We are not done with it. You might think, oh, that's been repudiated. No, it hasn't been. There is an analysis out. And we always knew this would happen. There was a German study that that hinted to this and JAMA made them take it back even though it was a great study. But this was put out as a preprint by Italian um, researchers. If you want to look it up, the title is Inhaled CO2 Concentration While Wearing Face Masks, a pilot study using capnography. And basically... They found that with surgical masks, the CO2 concentration of inhaled air exceeded the danger zone of 5,000 ppm in 40% of people wearing it. And they found that these measurements, were, reached those measurements over the course of wearing it for just five minutes, following a 10-minute period of rest with participants seated, silent, and breathing only through the nose. You can imagine people that do manual labor, sports, all this stuff throughout the day, still doing it. They found the mean CO2 concentration uh, with, uh, of the inhaled air without masks was 458 ppm. Wearing a surgical mask, it was 10 times greater, and it exceeded that danger zone of 5,000 in 40% of cases. I want you to think about that. Among children under 18, the mean CO2 concentration while wearing a surgical mask was 6,439 ppm. Think about that. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's nothing we didn't know from surgeons in the past. And by the way... The only randomized controlled trials have shown no better outcomes with bacterial infections post-surgery wearing a mask. So everyone's like, well, they wear it in a medical setting. Aside from the fact that it's very different in many ways, truth be told, there's no evidence it works in a medical setting either. So this is still being done. Could you imagine this experimentation is still being done over two years into this on children not only before we know it's safe and effective, which you would need to know per the Nuremberg Code, but after we affirmatively know it's unsafe and ineffective. And, and actually, we have plenty of studies showing a reverse correlation, just like with the shots. And speaking of reverse correlation with the shots, so there is a nugget out from ONS, that's the, a survey from the UK, that shows infection rates by vaccination status updated May 11th. Unvaccinated had a 3.6% rate. Two doses had 3.7. Three doses had 5.6. And four doses had 4.8. So the lowest was, you guessed it, those without the shots. Okay? Another interesting thing is humble analysis on uh, Twitter. I don't know who that is, but he's been putting out good stuff throughout the pandemic. Did a scatter diagram of vaccination rates and hospitalization rates. Okay, so we already know, obviously, they have higher case rates, but they say, oh, well, there's protection against critical illness. So, if you look at the rates, the weekly COVID-positive hospital admissions per 100,000, the top three right now are New York, Vermont, and Massachusetts, which have one of the highest rates. And the bottom three are Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama, which are... Among the bottom five, I believe, of vaccinated states is almost an inverse relation. And what's interesting is you might say, well, Daniel, you know, that that sounds like that might be a geographical seasonal thing that it's like the New England is, is, is getting bad now and the South is good. But that there's a problem because we're already in mid May. And mid-May is already usually Memorial Day is when it starts in the South. I mean, that's past the winter or early spring. Sometimes you have an early spring curve in the North. So that is not following Hope Simpson. That is not following the traditional trajectory. So that's that's a very, very interesting outcome we're seeing. Denmark also, we're seeing the same thing. They have data out. They actually have very good tracking, positive tests per 100,000 And literally, I'm eyeballing it. And pretty much every single age group, it's a straight scale. The least amount of cases are the unvaxxed, then double, and now triple. It is... I, I mean, this is still going on. No matter how much data show that it doesn't work, it actually is negative efficacy against COVID, other harms, both with the mask and with the shots, it's not going away. Okay? It's not going away. Just know in the winter, they will bring this, or, the, or the, really the fall, they're going to bring all this back. You know that. They are going to bring this all back. And an important thing to realize is that all these Republican governors that are like, oh yeah, we're not into that anymore. Let's just assume they're not going to downright implement it. But the feds and the system is going to churn. So you're going to have basically most of the places locally are going to do it anyway. So be doing nothing is not an, is, is not an, that's not an option. Anything short of the state government interposing, the local government interposing against it, banning it, criminalizing it. Again, you can't fight maniacal global powers that are more powerful than any nation state in the history of the world, by just saying, all right, well in our jurisdiction, either way is okay. Just like Newton's laws of motion, it works the same thing legally and politically. You can't fight action with inaction. Power with passivity. And in that vein, I want to get to our special guest today. So one of the most imminent direct threats to our bodily autonomy, quite literally, is this pandemic treaty. Now, we've had terrible treaties in the past that have been floated upon us that affect our economy, our way of life. But never before has there been a proposed treaty that will literally vitiate our individual sovereignty. So it's not just, oh, our national sovereignty, it's our human sovereignty. January 24th was the date when Tedros, he's the, I can't even pronounce his last name, the Director General of the WHO, he basically said that the goal of this treaty is to make the world on which Science triumphs over misinformation. Solidarity triumphs over division. Equity is a reality, not an aspiration. And we are one world, we have one health, and we are one WHO. And the goal was to create a uh, treaty that is in line with that principle. Until now, the U.S. has been awfully quiet. The Biden administration, it's unclear where they stand. Um, It's mainly been Europeans talking about this. And we always knew the Biden administration would be supportive of it, but we haven't heard much. But in recent weeks has come to life. Michelle Bachman has talked about this and others that indeed there are actually amendments that the Biden administration submitted to not just countenance this entire ordeal, but to make it even stronger. And they are meeting May 22nd. That's the day you and I are going to go out for our little get-together, our defensive hang-on training in New Mexico. So that week, this is all going down uh, at the WHO, um, their, their big, their big uh, council meeting, and they might secure this quite expeditiously. This is something we need to know what it is and where is it headed, what could we do about it. Now, someone who's been all over this, is Dr. Kat Lindley. She's a family physician in Texas. She's also on the steering committee of the World Council for Health. So it's actually a global organization to combat globalism and control over your body. She's the American representative. Uh, she has great stuff she puts out all the time. You could find her at katlindley.com. She has her writings there as well as following her on Twitter at klveritas. KL Veritas on Twitter. Dr. Lindley, thanks so much for joining us today from halfway around the world.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm actually in uh, London um, today. But thank you for bringing up the uh, pandemic treaty. It's actually two different subjects. I'll walk you a little bit through it. So in December of last year, um, WHO said we we need a treaty to make sure that uh, future pandemics are handled correctly, and everything goes after one health, uh, one global world. So they started negotiating in actually in March of this year to have the treaty and bring it forth in May of 24 to be voted on. That's called Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. If that treaty is voted um, and they adopt it, then two thirds of our Senate would have to ratify that treaty. So, I'm actually not really that concerned about the pandemic treaty because I do feel that our constitution and Bill of Rights protect us. Sure. That they protect us uh, from it. But one thing that's more of a concern is actually international health regulations. That's what you brought up. So, that's happening. Uh, the General Assembly is meeting in Geneva, May 22nd through 28th, to put forth uh, these amendments that United States delegation gave towards like, you know, the end of the deadline, almost in January, they put some uh, amendments forth. And these amendments would allow WHO to declare, a health minister could we declare a regional uh, pandemic. And then based on that regional pandemic of concern, the director general could actually uh, declare international uh, concern. In the past, the uh, the IHRs would say that you cannot uh, do that unless the country agrees. With these new amendments, the country does not have to agree. They can just declare it and uh, WHO responds to it. And the other thing is, in the past, we had 18 months to actually implement these amendments. But with the new uh, amendments for put forth from our administration, we will only have six months. So it's definitely a concern because if it happens, um, WHO comes in and based on their own uh, constitution, Article 21 of WHO constitution, they can change nomenclature of diseases, of uh, illnesses. They can declare what type of uh, therapeutics we have. They can uh, mandate new products, and it's kind of everything that we just went through, right? They changed the name of the pandemic, herd immunity. They made us uh, use these mRNA vaccines all over the world. They're saying only certain treatments work. It's just going to get worse.
0: So this is a very important point you're making when we say the word pandemic treaty conversationally. It's a little bit different than technically what's happening, because I think this has been the concern throughout the pandemic. That we've never had laws. Forget about international; just you know, locally, state, federal. We never really had laws. In most states or all states, they never passed a law. You shall lock down. Kids should wear masks. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all done unilaterally through uh, bureaucrats, administratively, the federal and state administrations, mayors, governors. Uh, there was very little legislative authority. So. They're not stupid. They're not going to seek legislative authority because they never did to begin with. So a formal uh, treaty, I guess we have enough of a constitution still in place in America, very little, but that's ironclad. So, yeah, they're not going to do it. Although I would say, uh, Kat, I think it is important that we, you know, preemptively do get 34 senators on board and just say, look, this is a non-starter. But what you're saying is we got to make sure we don't confuse the language and get all caught up in the tre- uh, technical treaty and they'll implement a violation of our sovereignty without a formal treaty. But my question to you is this, if it's not a formal treaty, then what do we care? In other words, how does it bind us in any way? How does that control us any more than our government is willing to screw with our bodily autonomy anyway?
1: So like I mentioned, the pandemic treaty, um, uh- that actually comes in play in 24, and that has to go through Senate. So I feel that even in 24, we should have, like you said, 34 uh, senators or something. I I don't even think Democrats will be, they're not going to be able to vote that in. Anything can happen, but I feel a little bit safer when it comes to treaty. The concern is these international health regulations, because we adopted that uh, in 2005. And according to that, uh, when WHO gives recommendations, it's kind of interesting. If you, if, you, if you really dig down that rabbit hole, the truth is we're not obligated to adopt their recommendations, but there is every indication that current administration will and that will use that as an excuse to actually uh, implement the WHO response to any type of pandemics that we might have in future.
0: So the Biden administration would be able to come to Congress and the states and just say, hey, look, you know, uh, this is what we signed. This is what the WHO said. And this is what we're doing without ever having to seek Senate approval. Um, What other. Just from watching the motivations, could you discuss a little bit more about the players the major global players behind this, and some of their motivations. What, what, what are the big things that they're eyeing? Because, uh, Kat, they've already achieved this stuff, so it has to be a whole new level. Because, honestly, I mean, I can't think of anything worse than gagging your face, okay, saying that you can't breathe, criminalizing human breathing. They've done that already. Uh, you know, the lockdowns, forced jabs. What else is under their sleeve with these health regulations?
1: So this is my fear. If you actually look at the uh, things happening, or I always watch the world. So about a week ago, uh, 10 days ago, the Irish minister, one of the ministers, said this fall we're going to have the more dangerous, the more virulent strain, and it's going to be a whole lot worse than it was before. All of a sudden, two days later, Bill Gates said the same thing. And then WHO uh, put some kind of bulletin forward, and then I, I saw an interview with Burks who said exactly the same thing is going to happen uh, in the United States. So you already see that they're trying to create this uh, messaging that something is going to happen this fall. What's happening in the United States in the fall? We have election, right? Um, so that's one thing. And then you have these IHRs that are supposed to be uh, voted on in May. And if approved and if our administration implements it, uh, five plus six is what, November? that's when they can uh, create this global response. So there's a lot of happening, indicating that starting you know, November, December, we're gonna be in another lockdown. And interesting thing is that WHO, uh, I believe it was February of this year, uh, went into contract with uh, a company, and I believe the name is Telecom, who uh, will implement digital passport. What's going to happen with digital passport, digital ID? They can start assigning a social grading system. You know, if you wear your mask, if you, uh, uh, you know, do what you're supposed to do, if you get three vaccines, four, five, six, maybe you can go uh, to Disney World. Maybe you can't. I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, making that up. But really, the truth is, if they go digital ID route, they can create this social grading system that's going to dictate our way of life. And as someone who grew up in communism and who understands what not having freedom is, I don't want my children to grow up in that type of environment.
0: You know, I wanted to bring that up with you. So you came, um, you know, when you're a young adult, you grew up as a kid in the former Yugoslavia under Soviet style communism. How does it feel coming to America then becoming a doctor in America and watching America, but the medical field in particular in America become the way it did.
1: So um, do you remember um, when the bulletin from the uh, Department of Homeland Security came out saying that if anyone speaks against uh, um, COVID policies or uh, election uh, that they will be considered terrorists. Do You remember when that came out? yes, I think was, yes. Like, so that that contrary. was
0: actually ahead of any other uh, domestic threat, including Islamic terror. it was it was it was number one on that list,
1: yeah, so that's the day that like we share friends, so you know a lot of them, so they know what I went through. but I it kind of hit me like a ton of brick. um uh, i I went through like three days of really disbelief you know almost kind of depression because uh, and and the thought that kept on like going through my mind was like i was not born free and now i'm going to die not free and i never mm-hmm. thought that something like that would happen in the uh, united states because you know you and i may disagree about things right but that's fine that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to disagree in life and then come to some kind of common ground and create policies out of that so if i think based on actual science and data that something doesn't work that's my opinion you might disagree with me but that doesn't mean that you get to censor me and to live in a country you know i s- sometimes speak with um uh, dr urso colin and, and the others and i always tell people it's not about the vaccine this is, I don't have an argument against the vaccine. I feel, you know, I, I feel the way I feel about I, it. But I, I, ultimately, a I field person can make their own decision. It's their own life. It's about a mandate, because if you live in a free country, there's no mandates. We haven't lived in a free country for a very long time, and people don't realize that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say, just a little bit, uh, not to get distracted with the mandates. Even short of a full mandate, which we do have in many places, the military, healthcare workers, and many states. But if the government takes something that is extremely problematic and spends billions marketing, distributing, um, working with media and tech to promote it, and I mean, that also takes away people's informed consent. It's not um, an enlightened consent, as one of the a memorandum that came out of the Nuremberg trials. You need an enlightened consent. So even short of a full mandate, uh, we're certainly seeing this. And, and I want to get your thoughts on this because you are dealing with kind of a global perspective. You're dealing with doctors internationally that are working to combat it. One of the things that I find remarkable in the time we live in history is every other time in history, tyranny was... It was national or regional
1: mm-hmm. and it
0: was government now it's global and it's marshaled a so-called private sector in, you know into into that tyranny almost in a way that you can't get away from it is this really what, what we're up against
1: I think so. And, you know, I, I always watched the world when the whole thing started. And um, when we started, you know, dropping some mandates and different things, I would always tell people, no, watch the world? What's the, what's the leaders? They're using exactly the same language. It has never happened in history of anything that you have leaders from Europe, from, you know, United States, Canada, from um A lot of different countries saying exactly the same words. Mm. And the funny thing is, it always happens. They have this big announcement right after they had like a meeting in Davos, or if they had like, you know, the other one they have in Zurich or or whatever. Those financial meetings It always happens after those meetings. And you're right, you know. At the end of the day, you just have to follow the money to realize that this has nothing to do with the uh, health of people. It has to do with something. It's a lot more sinister than
0: that. Here's my concern headed forward after everything we went through. Um, In general, to most people, this disease was not deadly, although it did get pretty bad actually post-vaccine, mid to late 2021. But clearly, they are talking about something coming with a degree of certitude that sounds eerily similar to what they said Before this came about, I just didn't realize it at the time, but now that we look back at the record, clearly they were saying it. We don't know the origins of this um, virus other than we know it was man-made and it wasn't natural. We just don't know the extent of who was behind it. Um, But we have some suspicions, and I think we probably both agree on that. What I'm scared about headed forward is what do we do now that we have a system, a medical system in America that's very centralized? working hand in glove with government to force upon you certain courses of action and block from you other actions. So it's not like it's something you could avoid. You know, they say global Mm -hmm. warming, but that's more of a disagreement over something that's happening and many of us don't believe in it, whereas COVID was real. It was real because someone created it. And my fear is whether it's a new thing they create or whether it's viral immune escape from endless vicious cycle of vaccinating with a leaky, narrow spectrum, uh, you know, corrupted shot, an antigen, and possibly some of the therapeutics as well, causing uh, mutagenicity. That we're going to have something that's very bad, and it's going to continue getting worse. And we actually need treatment, and they're going to block it. So you you've been into medical freedom for a long time before COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. You work in in direct primary care. What are some policies you think states like Texas, where you're from, could take to help empower doctors like yourself to get more patients' quality treatment uncorrupted from all these influences?
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, Florida is doing a good job. Uh, governor Desantis is trying to do uh, the best he can with uh you know within the parameters that he has, and General Surgeon Ladapo is doing an awesome job leading the Health Freedom. And ultimately, it has to be about physician and patient uh, relationship. You know, in direct primary care, there is no middleman. It's just me and the patient. We decide together what is the best treatment. I always tell my patient, I. You know, I can lead you to water, but I can make you drink it, which means that my patients do as much work as I do for them to be healthy. Um, in s- individual states, we need to create legislature that will actually allow physician and patients that, to have that kind of relationship, where the pharmacies will not interfere with the uh, prescription from a physician if we feel it's indicated. We are allowed to use medications off-label, and we've done that for a long time. I can tell you as a doctor, I, I never want to kill anyone. You know, if, if, I, if I harm anyone even by, by anything, it, it, it hurts my heart. So for someone to think that, like, we're going we're to prescribe medications that are not safe is just ludicrous none of us would do anything like that. We always look at the risks and benefits and what will benefit the patient. So we need to create the environment where doctors are not afraid to practice because there are a lot of states where, um, you know, at the beginning, there was a statement, I believe, from Pharmacy Board and Texas Medical Board, I'm not sure, but uh, they were not in support of uh, Pharmacists could kind of push back on prescribing Avermectin or, or different medications they didn't feel that, you, that you're allowed to do. And then the, the uh, Texas Medical Board and Pharmacy Board pushed back. Senator Hall uh, helped with that a lot uh, to make sure that, uh, and the statement now says that if, if physician feels it's uh, appropriate, it's okay to prescribe medications. It doesn't say anything specifically about which medications. But we need to create medical freedom. And also, um, more practices that are independent, they're outside of the system. You know, I'm in UK right now, and um, one of the things I'm speaking to physicians here about is the fact, I just gave an interview with Garrett Ike, and I said to him, uh, the only way you guys are gonna get out of this mess is if your doctor go private. The problem is the NHS is like part of their system, you know, they're all afraid to jump out. But a lot of their physicians don't want to be vaccinated. They're leaving medicine, and uh, NHS is already failing. So I tried to, So I I'm trying to teach them how to do this direct primary care because you don't have to charge a lot of money. It's very affordable, and you're helping people. And especially sure. here in UK, they're having a lot of uh, you know vaccine injury patients, and there's a lot more correlation and stuff where they actually are showing that that's the reason, and the environment here is not helping them at all. So the only way forward is independence.
0: Independence, which we don't have here, because, see, a lot of people listening will, will make fun of the NHS, and oh, well, we don't have that here, but we do. At the end of the day, what people don't realize, and I think it's become self-evident after Obamacare, but it was really you know bad before then, is that, first of all, half of it is government-run directly, and even the part that's not, it's now this cartel of massive insurance conglomerates, hospital conglomerates that then own all the practices. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, you didn't have uh, MedStar OBGYN, right? It -hmm. was, you know, John's practice, whatever. And now everything is, is part of this cartel. So the government puts out the edict and it's one system. So to me, you know, being under MedStar is just as bad as being under... HHS, it's the same thing. Um, you know this well, whole public-private in, thing.
1: In a lot of states, it's actually illegal to practice corporate practice of medicine. But we actually every state does corporate practice of medicine, because if you're practicing, like if you're inside a Baylor system or Texas Health or <coughs> you know uh, HCA hospital system. What happens is like you are really um, supposed to be referring within your system. You're supposed to get labs there. You're supposed to get radiology there. You're supposed to send to your specialists there. And that's really corporate practice of medicine. And that's really, it is like you said, a step closer because they have formularies you're supposed to use. You know, yeah. the worst thing that ever happened to medicine is, is protocols. Because what yep. protocols have done in the hospitals, they've dumbed down. Um, the critical thinking of physicians, because now a patient comes in with a sore throat, they have fever, uh, and their white count is high, that's con- considered sepsis. Well, patient is stable, patient is not septic. But the reason it's considered sepsis is because the hospital can actually charge higher. And then they have to give uh, certain medications if it goes under protocol. Wow! And you have to check this box and that box.
0: You just told me something it's new. It's insane. I, I I was, it's funny, I never articulated it, but subtly throughout the last couple of years I've been watching this, and I've noticed there's sepsis everywhere, and I'm thinking, I used to think that was a really nasty term, you know, that was like, wow, someone's in really bad shape, and now everyone's septic, that's interesting. Um, so well, when I was
1: in medical school, you know, if, if, if a patient was septic, it was like, oh wow, is the patient going to survive? Yes, and that's then, what I thought I of that. When I started practicing one time, they labeled one of my patients septic, and it was like 25, 26-year-old female who got strep from her kids, and she had fever and white count. And that, uh, and I think maybe her ESR, which is like a, 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 it's inflammation marker, I think maybe mm. that, that was high as well. But yeah, that makes sense because she has an infection. But they consider that sepsis because it's, it's, like the, it's checked, you know, all the boxes were checked. And then when you have protocols, there's a higher reimbursements and all that.
0: This is, again, this is at least as bad as Europe. You're sitting there in England and we used to always um, pride ourselves that we didn't have the situations like with Charlie Gard and, you know, all those, uh, uh, you know, right to life cases. But now now we have that. We have that just as badly here. Um, And and that's how we need to slip out of it. Just getting back to these international health regulations, do you think there would be value to state and county governments getting together immediately and preemptively um, voting on a resolution that they will not adopt any of these regulations that come out?
1: You know, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but uh, from what I understand, state always trumps the federal government on most things. So I think if you have a strong governor that would take leadership on something like this and make sure that Mm -hmm. even if the federal government at some point mandates some type of IHR, I would think that uh, there are enough state constitutions that would actually protect people and um, that we would not have to implement this. Now, in some other states, I would be fearful because I'm sure there are going to be governors who are going to jump oh, all yeah. over this just to lock them down. But at least, like for me, I'm in Texas. I would hope that my governor exactly. is going to be smart enough to do something.
0: Those states are gone. I mean, there's nothing we can do. What I'm saying is and they can't have it both ways if you're not going to go the treaty route. So, you know, if you go to the treaty route, you will say, well, that trumps the states. It does if you get two thirds. Um, But if you're not going to go that route and you're just going to kind of bureaucratically say, well, the WHO says this, states should say jump in the lake. I mean, we're not doing that. We're not governed by the Mm -hmm. WHO. And until uh, the Senate ratifies a treaty, um, you know, come back to us then. So I think that's a good form of activism here. Uh, Just in our remaining few minutes here. So you are a family physician. You've been seeing families throughout this ordeal. Could you describe what you're seeing among children just from the amalgamation of mm-hmm. factors, of negative factors that have been applied to their lives, the social isolation, the um, constant fear, the masking, what are you seeing among children that come in, in, into your practice?
1: So, you know, during the lockdowns, especially in, in Texas, luckily we didn't lock down for too long, but during that time, uh, there was lots of anxiety, a lot of depression, and in a community next to mine, a, a child, I believe he was 13 years old or something like that, he actually hung himself in a closet because I think he broke his V or something, and his dad found him. And that was type of, you know, we had the increase in suicide uh, rates and suicidal attempts and lots of depression and anxiety. And then in younger children, um, there are several studies that came out One was done by Brown University. They studied kids three months to three years old, 776 kids, I believe. And uh, they discovered that their IQ, the ones that were born during pandemic, uh, their IQ dropped 22 points, which is significant. And for the ones that are wearing masks, what most people don't realize, young children, um... You know five years and younger they need to see um bottom half of your face to understand the emotions behind the word because if you're wearing a mask and you say no if you are frowning the child can understand that you're being serious but if you're kind of saying no but smiling then the child is like okay this is not as serious but now we've taken that ability to actually emotionally analyze mm. the meaning of the words a lot of these children now don't understand exactly what it means. And then there are some kids actually, and this happens more in teenagers, they use masks to hide themselves because it's easier to be nobody behind the mask. Wow. And sometimes it's easier not to be seen than be seen. So we've created a lot of this, just a level of fear and anxiety in community. And then the data also shows that kids um, are behind in their schooling, and in Texas, we, we pretty much recovered because we opened up the schools uh, fairly, um, you know, soon. But we've damaged future generation. There's but no they've been open with it... the
0: masks. I mean, most most of that time uh, yes. in most places, you know. So in some ways that was even worse. Some ways better, but some ways worse. So um, you create an and entire. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one one thing I forgot to mention and this is really significant, there is 336% increase in speech therapy because of the mask.
0: Yes, my my um sister has been a speech therapist for 22 years and she said there is no precedent for this. Uh their no. caseloads are busy as anything, there's waiting lists. Um they the way she described it is that you know, they now have regular kids two, three, four that sound autistic, even, even if they're not, um, mm-hmm. that's how bad it is. Uh, she described very vividly for me, all the sounds and the language issues. She could directly trace it back to, to that. And it is, it is unbelievable. Um, if you are trying to mess up an entire generation of people, language and communication is everything. They've done a great job at that. And, and I just, get the impression that this is all a part of this transhumanism and just dehumanizing an entire global population. It's funny in many ways we are one people. We do have one health health. I I agree with these people. Um, That's the beauty of this. I think we could unite Um, because in many respects this does unite us more than anything ever because this is a global war from, Uh, just a group of very evil people that have all the power against people from all different backgrounds that, you know, share humanity and want to thrive as humans as we always did. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like it's kind of your work. Let me just give you the last word on, you know, what you hope to accomplish through this World Council for Health and your other work here domestically.
1: So, uh, to give you an idea, I'm here in UK for we have better, better way conference that's organized by a World Council for Health and there are going to be physicians from uh, United States and all over the world coming Richard Durst, Ryan Cole, Robert Malone um, are going to be here in person and then uh, Peter McCullough will, will zoom in, I'll, I'll be speaking as well. but. Like you said, one thing that happened and I think they didn't realize is this thing united people across the world. So I'm actually staying at a house of a family. Um, so Howard, the husband, got sick. I think it was, it's been like <coughs> six months ago or something. And he was in a hospital and they reached out to me through a friend. And I, I helped guide them. Through that he was in a hospital, he was doing very poorly. It was a very stressful time for the family. But we became good friends and now I'm visiting them and, and they you know their kids call me uncat. But like I said, what I think these globalists haven't realized is that as much as they push at us, we are pushing back and we are uniting. And people of the world are coming together and saying, you know what, enough is enough, and we're not gonna follow these directions because they don't make sense. So um, I would say that's the best thing that has happened. And the only way we actually will get through this is if people take their power back.
0: Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you for all of your work. Again, you can find her at com at klveritas on Twitter. Please keep us posted, and God bless you for your work.
1: Thank you. And it's actually com. but thank you so much Oh, catlindleydio
0: How could we forget? DOs are much better than MDs, by the way. <laughs> I'm totally sold on that. So com. Take care and uh, wish you best of luck at this conference. So anyway, folks, on a positive note, I, th- I think it really is true what Dr. Lindley was saying, that as much as this has brought out the worst of humanity, it's brought out the best of humanity as well. People trying to help each other. And this is what we need to do as individuals, as humans, get together, say we've had enough of this garbage. But again, we we, we got to focus on this. I mean, listen to some of the candidates. Getting back to this discussion over the primaries, you listen to the subject of their campaign, and you listen to this show, and it's like, okay, what? You're living in a different time era. And that's really our challenge, to focus the proper issues Again, I'm going to really be driving home things that states and localities can and must do. Principles they must rally behind a set of actions that need to be taken, and I'm going to be codifying that soon in a some sort of publication because this this is really where it's at. I mean, we're we're at the bottom of the ninth inning, a couple minutes left in the fourth quarter, if you prefer football analogy, and the clock is ticking. And the more we wait, the more power they accumulate and the less leverage we have to fight back hope you guys have a terrific weekend send me your comments questions concerns to daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com till monday god bless y'all and thank you for listening